This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. Thank you for the invitation to speak today. I find both the collaboration between the Oxford Human Rights Hub um, and the Refugee Studies Centre and also the topic of this seminar series, Human Rights, Asylum and Refugee Protection, a most welcome one. Although the proposition that international refugee law must be understood and applied within the broader context of international human rights law uh, is a reasonably uncontroversial one, I think there is real value, in my view, in further interrogating that relationship and also exploring what that relationship might mean for particular subgroups of refugees. This evening I'd like to talk about the role international human rights law may have to play in claims involving refugee children. More specifically, I would like to examine the relationship between the Convention on the Rights of the Child and the Refugee Convention in determining the of the of the status of a refugee child. I propose to speak for approximately 45 minutes to then hopefully uh, leave some time for questions. Um, but before I start, I'd like to set out three caveats uh, and also an apology. Uh, the first caveat is that today I'm focusing on the issue of uh, status. So uh, who qualifies for protection under the Refugee Convention or some other form of complementary protection? Uh, what this means is I won't be looking at the rights that uh, attach to uh, an individual once they establish refugee status. Uh, in particular, I'm not looking at the interplay between the framework of rights under the Refugee Convention uh, and the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Uh, the second caveat is that today it will become very quickly apparent that I'm focusing on the procedural and doctrinal challenges that children face in establishing uh, some form of protection status in the industrialised world. Uh, and I really want to acknowledge that in circumstances where more than 80% of the world's refugees reside in the developing world, that's a significant shortcoming really in, in my talk. But the reason for that uh, is, is that it reflects the reality that eligibility for refugee status uh, really isn't one of, um, is generally less of an issue uh, in the developing world. Uh, where the key challenge for children uh, really is uh, their treatment after uh, gaining some form of protection status. Um, obviously, with, with millions of children uh, being deprived of basic rights in refugee camps and also uh, in urban settings. And although uh, the Convention on the Rights of the Child is certainly relevant to, to these children uh, and some excellent work is being done in uh, using uh, the Convention on the Rights of the Child to advance the rights of, uh, of refugee children in these contexts. Um, uh, in particular, well, one example that, uh, that I have worked with is the Refugee Law Project in Kampala. Uh, this is just beyond the scope of, of what I'm speaking about today. And the third caveat is that I'm going to try to cover quite a lot of, a lot of material. And, and so what I'm going to try to do is provide a reasonably high-level overview of some of the key issues that I have identified in my doctoral research, uh, rather than try to provide a comprehensive account of, of any, particular, any particular issue. 
I'm hoping, however, that this general framework will provide a platform for some discussion and debate. Um, my apology is that I'm a lawyer, and, um, uh, and I appreciate that this is an interdisciplinary crowd, and so I'm going to do my very best to uh, avoid legal speak um, and perhaps raise your eyebrows or something if I um, occasionally transgress. Okay, the CRC, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, uh, really does need little introduction. Uh, it was adopted in 1989 uh, and came into a force in 1990. Uh, it is the most widely ratified of all of the international human rights treaties, uh, with the United States and Somalia being the only two states in the world that have not ratified it. Uh, the instrument applies to uh, each uh, child which falls within a state party's jurisdiction and it prohibits any discrimination irrespective of the child's or his or her parents' or legal guardian's birth or other status. The rights contained in the Convention on the Rights of the Child thus apply to all children in the jurisdiction of a state party, including refugees, asylum seekers and refused asylum seekers. These subcategories of children are entitled to benefit from the provisions of the Convention on the Rights of the Child to precisely the same extent as a citizen child. The point has been emphasised by the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child, uh, which has noted the principle of non-discrimination in all its facets applies in respect of all dealings with separated and unaccompanied children. In particular, it prohibits any discrimination on the basis of the status of a child as being unaccompanied or separated or as being a refugee, asylum seeker or migrant. In circumstances where the Convention on the Rights of the Child uh, provides the most comprehensive and authoritative articulation of the minimum obligations that a state owes to a child, uh, including refugee children, it follows, in my view, that the CRC has an important and arguably central role to play in assessing protection claims involving children. Uh, I can't really make the point any more eloquently than uh, Guy Goodwin-Gill, uh, who notes... Uh, uh, this is back in 1995, so showing quite considerable foresight. Uh, the fact that the Convention on the Rights of the Child reflects a near-universal consensus is a major advantage of child advocates throughout the world, seeking to initiate protection and assistance programs to monitor existing practices and to reform those that do not work. The arguments from experience can now, in many cases, be backed up or grounded in this international set of rules, cogently and coherently supporting the work of those who would bring effective protection to refugee children. In an earlier paper uh, published last year, I outlined three contexts in which I consider that the Convention on the Rights of the Child might appropriately be engaged uh, to assist in determining the status of a refugee child. And I refer to these as um, three modes of interaction. And I'd like to spend some time uh, this evening exploring those three modes uh, before concluding with some more general thoughts about the relationship between the international refugee protection regime uh, and international law on the rights of the child. So the three modes of interaction. First, the Convention on the Rights of the Child as a procedural guarantee, uh, incorporating safeguards into the refugee status determination process. The second mode of interaction is the Convention on the Rights of the Child as an interpretive aid to inform the uh, elements of the refugee definition. And the third uh, mode of interaction is the Convention on the Rights of the Child as an independent source of status outside the international refugee protection regime. 
So turning first uh, to the Convention on the Rights of the Child as a procedural guarantee. As many of you uh, will be aware, uh, the Refugee Convention is largely silent on the procedures that a state should implement in designing a domestic system of refugee status determination. In contrast, the Convention on the Rights of the Child contains a number of provisions that may inform the determination process. It may, for instance, be relevant to age assessment procedures, guardianship and care arrangements, to the provision of legal assistance um, and uh, courtroom concessions for children, for example, testifying during uh, uh, an adjudication, uh, or um, the detention of children throughout the determination process. I'm not proposing to deal with all of those uh, this evening. Uh, what I want to focus on uh, is the requirements set out under Article 12 of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, uh, that a child have an opportunity to express views freely in matters affecting them and be heard in judicial and administrative proceedings. Before I turn to Article 12, though, I want to do a little bit of scene setting and explain what I see uh, to be one of the fundamental problems uh, facing or challenges facing children and why I think Article 12 might be able to assist. A review of state practice uh, demonstrates that children are very often invisible within the refugee status determination process, particularly in the industrialised world. Um, indeed, the UNHCR has identified uh, invisibility as one of the key challenges that children face uh, in establishing entitlement to refugee status. Such invisibility is most striking uh, in the context of children that are accompanied by a family member. Uh, as UNHCR has noted, children are often perceived as part of a family unit rather than as individuals with their own rights. According to UNHCR, this is ex um, explicable by the subordinate roles positions and status children still hold in many societies. A review of state practice demonstrates that in claims involving families it is common practice for a child's claim to simply be subsumed into the claims of one of her parents with the child's status automatically flowing from the status of the parent. In cases where refugee status is granted to a parent, uh, this derivative procedure presents uh, no problem whatsoever. More problematic, however, uh, is the converse scenario where a parent's claim is rejected and the child's claim is then automatically denied without any specific consideration. And critically, this may occur despite the fact that the child has a stronger independent claim than that uh, of uh, her parent. This may, for example, be because she's at risk uh, of a child-specific form of persecution uh, that, the, that the parent is not at risk of. For example, uh, uh, female genital, genital cutting, uh, deprivation of an education, parental abuse, involuntary gang or military recruitment, um, discrimination on account of being perceived as an illegitimate child. Uh, the, this, I guess, derivative form of uh, determination might also be a problem where a parent is excluded uh, under the exclusion provisions set out under Article 1F of the Refugee Convention, where there are doubts regarding the credibility of the parent's story, uh, or where there is a conflict of interest between a child and her parent. In each of these scenarios, in the absence of an independent assessment of a child's claim, the, there is a possibility that the child will be returned to the country of origin in circumstances where there is a real chance that that child uh, will be at risk of being persecuted. 
at an early stage of my research, I, I found myself asking, as I was reading all of these cases, why it was that advocates hadn't simply advanced advance the... Uh, the claim of the child, um, particularly because in each of these jurisdictions, the child had a right to independently apply for refugee status. And this was particularly uh, so in the US, where um, there are kind of dozens upon dozens of cases, uh, particularly involving um, female genital cutting, where it would be that where a family would advance a claim that they uh, feared that they would. Uh, be at risk of seeing um, their child being subjected to female genital cutting and would suffer psychological harm as a result of um, of uh, being subjected to seeing that uh, and other various um, novel creative ways to um, cast a claim. But I was just, when there was such a straightforward claim for the child, I was wondering why that um, wasn't simply advanced in that way. So I spent some time over at the um, uh, Harvard Immigration Clinic in, in Boston and I, uh, I really pushed on this and, and the answer is actually quite a, a simple one and that is in a number of jurisdictions including the UK, uh, the United States and Canada the, um, a child cannot afford derivative protection to her parent. Uh, so that is... Uh, if the parent is granted refugee status, the rest of the family will automatically be granted, uh, the, ch the children will automatically be granted refugee status as well, or, or, or a form of kind of derivative protection status. But the converse doesn't apply. So uh, the reason they will always try to advance the claim of the parent is because uh, the feeling was there's not much good just getting the um, uh, protection claim satisfied for the child because. The, the parents, if they don't independently establish refugee status, uh, uh, would end up being removed uh, and the child will um, really constructively be deported with them. Uh, and the practical consequences of this are, um, were set out in a decision of the, um, were, were described in a decision of the US Court of Appeals for the Ninth um, Circuit in um, a kind of a really great decision actually involving a Russian mother with a, um, a disabled son. Uh, the procedural issue arises as a consequence of the limited scope of derivative asylum applications. Although the statute, this being the, um, the relevant legislation in the United States, provides that minor children may obtain asylum derivatively through their parents, there is no comparable provision permitting parents to obtain that relief derivatively through their minor children. Accordingly, if a minor child is granted asylum as a derivative applicant of his parents' principal application, both parents and child can stay in the United States. However, if the child is the principal applicant and is granted asylum, the child can legally stay in this country, but his parents will be removed. Now, it's important to acknowledge, of course, that in many cases, the, this apparent disinclination to independently review or assess a child's refugee claim has translated into positive protection outcomes uh, for children. As I noted earlier, uh, a number of jurisdictions, uh, there's a long-established practice in a number of jurisdictions which automatically confer a form of protection on a child if her parents establish refugee status. Uh, but while there may be a principal basis for assimilating the status of a child with a parent in, the, in cases involving the conferral of protection, the same simply can't be said for cases involving the denial of protection. 
And this point was made uh, quite forcefully uh, by UNHCR in its uh, hand in the initial handbook, um, and it's uh, since been repeated uh, in various XCOM conclusions and uh, guidelines published by the UNHCR. And the point really is um, that family uh, unity can operate in favour of dependents but, but not against them. There is a good argument, uh, in my view, that the removal of a child without the individual assessment uh, of refugee status may give rise to a risk of uh, reform contrary to Article 33.2 of the Refugee Convention. Uh, there is, in my view, an additional uh, argument that the removal of, a removal of a child without individual assessment of status will also constitute a violation of Article 12 of the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Article 12.2, um, so the second uh, paragraph there, has particular consequence in the context of the refugee status determination process, stipulating that children have a right to be heard in any judicial and administrative proceedings affecting the child. In the refugee context, the language is wide enough to cover both the original administrative decision-making process as well as any subsequent judicial review. The antecedent clause for this purpose indicates that the components of Article 12.1 carry through to Article 12.2. In particular, decision makers in courts or other administrative proceedings have a duty not just to hear the child's views, but also to afford them due weight having regard to both age and maturity. Both the UNHCR and the UN Committee on the Child, Rights of the Child have called attention to the significance of Article 12 to the refugee status determination process. Uh, UNHCR noting even at a young age the child may still be considered the principal asylum applicant and that the right of children to express their views in all matters affecting them, including to be heard in all judicial and administrative proceedings, needs to be taken into account. Uh, similarly, in general comment number six, the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child employs Article 12 to promote measures that ensure the child's views and wishes are elicited and taken into account. And in its general comment number 12, uh, the committee emphasises that it is urgent to fully implement the child's right to express their views on all aspects of the immigration and asylum proceedings and, perhaps most importantly, the child must have the opportunity to present his or her reasons leading to the asylum claim. Article 12 has also increasingly found favour at the national level with domestic uh, legislation, guidelines and judicial decisions explicitly engaging with these participatory obligations. How then might a state respect both the non-reformant obligations under uh, the Refugee Convention uh, and the Article 12 obligation? A number of jurisdictions including Canada, New Zealand and several European jurisdictions have implemented domestic procedures that require a decision maker to undertake a separate refugee status determination process for each individual applicant, including each individual child, irrespective of whether that child forms part of a family unit. In Canada, for example, all applicants are required to file an individual claim for refugee status irrespective of whether that child is unaccompanied or accompanied by a family member or friend. And decision makers are statutory, statutorily obliged to make a separate determination for each individual applicant. Critically, this does not require the claims to be heard individually. Uh, in most cases, a child's claim will be heard jointly uh, with the claims of other family members. But what this statutory obligation does mean is that Canadian... Um, 
Canadian courts have uh, had a hook to make clear that where a child's claim, um, where there's been a failure to consider the separate nature and basis of the child's claim, there is a reviewable error. And on this basis, the Federal Court of Canada has remitted cases where the initial decision-maker failed, uh, for example, to take into account a child's distinct risk of child abuse, risk of sexual violence, risk of discrimination, risk of schoolyard beatings, uh, risk of forced military recruitment, uh, and another case where the child was at risk of being used as a human shield in civil conflict. The Canadian system, and, uh, and as I noted, there's a similar system operating in New Zealand, thus requires a decision-maker to turn their mind to the individual circumstances of the child and to ensure that a child's claim is not refused on account of the fact that their parents, or her parents have failed to establish refugee status. Of course, it's important to acknowledge that uh, such a system uh, does raise a number of concerns. And the most significant is that um, it may have the unintended consequence of separating the family unit. And this arises by reason of the reality that I mentioned earlier, that in a number of jurisdictions, uh, including the US, UK, uh, Canada, uh, a parent cannot get refugee status derivatively from their children. And so you can immediately see the difficulty we have here. By requiring an individual assessment of refugee status, there may be circumstances in which a child is found to be a refugee and their parent is found not to be. Uh, by contrast, a single determination for the family will ensure that all members of the family are either granted or denied the same protection status, um, thereby avoiding any potential fragmentation of the family. And this concern is not a hypothetical one. Both Canada, uh, both Canadian and New Zealand courts have on various occasions determined that a child is a refugee and their parents are not. I would argue, however, that these examples do not provide a principled basis for diluting a child's um, participatory rights, uh, nor a child's right to be protected against the risk of refoulement. Rather, the examples illustrate the need and importance of the effective implementation of family unity procedures, and in particular, uh, I would suggest the duty of non-separation protected under Article 9 of the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Uh, and in fact, this is precisely what does happen in both Canada uh, and New Zealand, where there are separate administrative procedures um, in place outside the refugee status determination process, which allow a parent who has been found not to be a refugee to apply to remain with their refugee child on family unity grounds. Okay. Second mode of interaction. The CRC, as an interpretive aid, uh, to inform the elements of the refugee definition. It's, it's really, it's quite trite to say that international law, um, and in particular international human rights law, has grown quite exponentially uh, in, this, in the past 60 years, over the past 60 years. And many of the um, open textured uh, provisions contained in the Refugee Convention have now been uh, re-articulated, recontextualized, uh, and in many cases expanded uh, in a comprehensive suite of international human rights instruments. There is widespread acceptance, both at an international and domestic level, that uh, these open texture provisions of the Refugee Convention should be interpreted taking into account this broader international human rights framework. 
In these circumstances, I would suggest that there is a clear and principle-based basis for drawing on the Convention on the Rights of the Child, the most authoritative articulation of the obligations that a state owes to a child, as an aid to informing the interpretation of the Refugee Convention definition <coughs> in claims involving children. Now, uh, as many of you will be aware, uh, pursuant to Article 1A2, a person is a refugee and entitled to the protections afforded under the Refugee Convention if they have a well-founded fear of being persecuted for one of the enumerated forms of civil and political status, race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion. Uh, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, I would suggest, is particularly relevant to the identification of persecutory harms, that is, what constitutes being persecuted uh, for the purposes um, of the Convention definition. I would suggest that the rights protected under the Convention on the Rights of the Child are tailored in such a way to take into account the reality that children experience harms in different ways to adults, the instrument thus provides both an automatic and a principled means for adapting the persecutory threshold to take into account a child's heightened sensitivities and distinct developmental needs. Indeed, in circumstances where there is a general agreement that international human rights law is relevant to the identification of persecutory harm, and where an overwhelming majority of states have acknowledged that children have a, set, a distinct set of human rights, it becomes difficult, in my view, to justify a failure to engage with the rights enshrined in the CRC when applying the being persecuted standard to children. The, the point has been uh, made quite eloquently by the Federal Court of Canada, uh, which notes in a case that I'll return to uh, later in the presentation. If the CRC recognises that children have human rights and that persecution amounts to the denial of basic human rights, then if a child's rights under the CRC are violated in a sustained or systemic manner, demonstrative of failure of state protection, that child may qualify for refugee status. Again, both UNHCR and the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child have issued guidance that promote interaction between the Refugee Convention, um, between the being persecuted definition uh, and the Convention on the Rights of the Child. In its 1997 guidelines uh, on policies and procedures in dealing with unaccompanied children, the UNHCR states that in identifying persecutory harm in cases involving children, it should be borne in mind that under the CRC, children are recognised as having certain specific human rights and that the manner in which those rights may be violated, as well as the nature of such violations, may be different from those that occur in the case of adults. And the point is re-articulated in the uh, organization's 2009 guidelines. Um, a contemporary and child-sensitive understanding of persecution encompasses many types of human rights violations, including violations of child-specific rights. Uh, the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child has similarly emphasised the need to take into account the development of and formative relationship between international human rights law and refugee law when assessing the being persecuted definition. The link between the CRC and the being persecuted standard has also been recognised by a number of scholars. At a domestic level, uh, the relationship has been recognised both in guidelines produced by governments and also in the jurisprudence of national courts and tribunals. And here, just to provide two examples uh, from the 
Immigration and Review Board guidelines in Canada, uh, and also uh, training guidelines used in the United States. In terms of case law, the clearest endorsement of drawing on the CRC in interpre interpreting the being persecuted uh, standard is found in Canadian jurisprudence. And if I can provide just one example, uh, in the 2010 case of Kim in Canada, which I cited earlier, the Canadian Federal Court was called upon uh, explicitly to consider the impact of the CRC on the definition of being persecuted. And though, although the court agreed with the argument advanced by the government that the Convention on the Rights of the Child does not change the refugee definition, it considered that the government had failed to appreciate the nuances that the Convention adds to the being persecuted standard. And, and um, to quote, to acknowledge that children have distinctive rights is not to graft additional rights uh, on the refugee definition, but is instead to interpret the definition of persecution in accordance with the distinct rights that children possess as recognised in the CRC. Therefore, when determining whether a child claiming refugee status fits the definition, decision makers must inform themselves of the rights recognised in the CRC is the denial of these rights which may determine whether or not a child has a well-founded fear of persecution if returned to his or her country of origin. Uh, this approach has since been approved in a series of federal court uh, decisions uh, in Canada. Um, although more infrequent decision-makers in New Zealand, the United Kingdom uh, and the United States have also on occasion demonstrated a willingness to draw on the framework of the Convention on the Rights of the Child to identify persecutory harm. Drawing on, this wider, on the wider framework of international human rights law, including the Convention on the Rights of the Child, in interpreting the elements of the refugee definition is consistent with principles uh, of international treaty interpretation, um, including in particular the Vienna Rules, uh, and I'm not proposing to deal with those uh, at any length uh, today. On a more normative level, recourse uh, to these international agreed standards, including the CRC, uh, enables the Refugee Convention definition to evolve in a contextually sensitive way. By embracing the interconnection between international refugee law and this increasingly sophisticated body of international human rights law, including international law on the rights of the child, decision makers are provided with an external point of reference that allows for the progressive development of international refugee law through the medium of the Convention. This in turn allows the Convention to respond to circumstances that may not have initially been envisaged by the drafters of the Convention. For example, the recognition of the relationship between the Convention uh, and the broader framework of international human rights law has been critical in advancing claims involving gender-related persecution, persecution on account of sexual orientation. I believe um, Shelvin uh, spoke several weeks ago uh, here and, and he has um, done a wonderful job of using uh, human rights law to uh, advance the claims of um, asylum seekers at, at risk because of their sexual orientation. Uh, and also socio-economic um, deprivation where uh, advocates and decision makers have been able to draw on socio-economic rights um, uh, to strengthen claims brought by uh, asylum seekers. So too I would suggest um, the international human rights law, and in particular the Convention on, on the Rights of the Child, uh, has a vital role to play in advancing the protection of refugee children. Uh, moving then to my uh, third mode of in interaction, um, uh, which is 
certainly the the, the least evolved uh, and probably the, the most controversial. And that's using the Convention on the Rights of the Child as an independent source of status um, outside the refugee protection regime. Uh, here, here I really step outside the Refugee Convention um, and consider the extent to which the Convention on the Rights of the Child itself contains complementary sources of protection that may provide additional safeguards to children. When one speaks of complementary protection, uh, um, particularly in, in Europe, you gen generally will jump straight to um, Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights, um, uh, to the Convention Against Torture, and potentially the implicit non-reformed obligations under the ICCPR. We also, however, have Article 6 and 37 um, of the Convention on Rights of the Child, which themselves contain implicit guarantees of uh, non-refoulement, which, which in my view are significantly broader than the comparable provisions under the ICCPR uh, and the Convention Against Torture. That's not what I want to talk about uh, this evening, though. Um, I want to focus on the capacity of Article 3 of the Convention on Rights of the Child to provide a complementary source of protection. So Article 3, um, often commonly referred to as, as the best interest principle. Uh, Article 3, subparagraph 1, provides in all actions concerning children, whether undertaken by public or private social welfare institutions, courts of law, administrative authorities, or legislative bodies, um, the best interest of the child shall be a primary consideration. This is certainly wide enough to capture any decision that's made by an administrative official tribunal or court regarding the removal of a child from a host state. Importantly, the obligation under Article 3 attaches to all children falling within a state's jurisdiction and a state cannot limit the application of the provision on the basis of a child's citizenship or immigration status. Although it is now widely accepted that Article 3 is relevant to child refugee applicants, that recognition has tended to focus on the influence of the obligation on the procedural guarantees afforded to children and the treatment of children during and subsequent to the refugee determination process. While Article 3 is plainly relevant to these issues, the best interest principle is also relevant, I would argue, uh, to the substantive determination as to whether a child is in fact eligible for international protection. An assessment of the best interest of the child may, for instance, preclude the return of a child to her home country, notwithstanding the fact that the child is not eligible for protection under the Refugee Convention. The argument that Article 3 provides a complementary basis for international protection is not a novel one. Uh, more than 15 years ago, in uh, 1997, uh, Guy Goodwin-Gill suggested that the CRC may call for a total realignment of protection for child refugee applicants. In a submission uh, he co-authored with uh, Onyez Hurwitz in several years later, he criticised what was then the draft European Qualification Directive for its failure to sufficiently engage uh, or take into account and sufficiently engage with Article 3 submitting that in every decision affecting the child, the best interests of the child shall be a primary consideration and where children are concerned, a duty to protect may arise absent any well-founded fear of persecution or possibility of serious harm. That argument has since been developed uh, and expanded by Jane McAdam, who uh, similarly argues that Article 3 may provide a complementary basis for protection, precluding the removal of a child from a host state. 
McAdam argues that the best interest principle adds an additional layer of consideration to the interpretation and application of the Refugee Convention, uh, in addition to constituting a complementary ground of protection in its own right. Both the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child and the UNHCR have also endorsed the argument that Article 3 creates um, what might be referred to as a new category of protected persons. The clearest affirmation is found in the Committee's general comment number 6, which provides that return to the country of origin shall in principle only be arranged if such return is in the best interests of the child. According to the committee, this determination should take into account the views of the child, the safety, security and socio-economic conditions awaiting the child upon return, the availability of care arrangements for the child, the child's level of integration in the host country, the child's right to preserve his identity, including his nationality, name and family relationship, and the desirability of continuity in a child's upbringing. The committee further suggests that in exceptional circumstances, other considerations may override the best interest of the child, but but suggests that such considerations must be rights-based and that non-rights-based arguments, such as those those relating to general migration control, cannot override best interest considerations. Finally, and although more embryonic, Article 3 is beginning to play an increasingly significant role at a domestic level. Although, as I hinted at earlier, there has been a general lack of enthusiasm at the domestic level surrounding the idea that the best interest principle may provide an independent basis for protection, there are signs that this is beginning to change. By way of illustration, following the UK's withdrawal of its reservation to the CRC, which had uh, initially limited the entitlement of non-citizen children to claim rights under the Convention on the Rights of the Child, the government enacted legislation requiring um, states to make arrangements for ensuring that the Secretary of State discharges her functions having regard to the need to safeguard and promote the welfare of children who are in the UK. This provided the impetus for a series of decisions considering the application of Article 3 to migration-related contexts. Although the UK in recent years has been at the forefront of of, of developments in this area, a number of jurisdictions have for some time engaged with the best interest principle in determining whether a child is entitled to some form of protection status. Uh, Senior courts in Canada, Australia and New Zealand have, for instance, long recognised that a decision involving the deportation or extradition of a child's parent must necessarily entail a consideration of the child's best interests. The US government has drawn on the best interest principle to develop a special protection status for a subset of unaccompanied children, special juvenile immigration status. And a number of jurisdictions, including Canada, Australia, New Zealand and several European states, have also implemented discretionary humanitarian protection regimes that require decision makers to take into account the best interests of any children affected by a decision to remove a child or the child's parents. This jurisprudence um, developed in these, these various contexts provides a valuable platform from which to develop a framework for assessing the capacity and scope of Article 3 Um, and identifying those circumstances uh, in which the provision may preclude the removal of a child from a host state. Um, I've written about this elsewhere, and unfortunately I don't have time to kind of provide my views on that that framework, but it is uh, very clear that this is an area to watch with increased engagement, particularly in national courts, with the best interest principle uh, in the context of migration claims uh, and refugee claims involving children. This final... uh, mode of interaction raises a number of more general issues regarding the relationship between uh, international refugee law um, and the Refugee Convention 
specifically uh, and the Convention on the Rights of the Child. In the context of claims involving children, it arguably presents a challenge to the Refugee Convention's entrenched position uh, as the cornerstone of the international refugee protection regime. And I was, I was trying to come up with a way to um, present the issue, or I guess the argument, um, visually. I'm, I'm doing it rather crudely um, uh, via these three concentric circles. So the innermost circle, I would suggest, is the scope of the Refugee Convention definition absent recourse to international human rights law, and in particular the Convention on Rights of the Child. So it's the more limited um, I guess, circle of protection, circle of people that would fall within, um, within the definition. Um, RC plus uh, reflects um, a more progressive interpretation of the refugee definition, um, arguably capturing a wider uh, subset of individuals and affording a um, greater scope of protection. The final circle... Um, uh, um, the wider circle is the best interest principle, Article 3 um, of the Convention on Rights of the Child, but also other forms of complementary protection. It seems to me that if applied correctly, uh, the best interest principle would mandate that any child that falls within the inner two circles, so RC or RC+, plus, uh, would not be returned to their country of origin. Um, in addition to that, it also arguably provides, um, would preclude the removal of children in a broader range of circumstances, so children that don't fall within RC or RC+. Uh, and so if Article 3 affords this wider scope of protection, what value does RC or RC+, um, actually provide? In a case involving a child that is seeking some form of international protection, why should a decision-maker not simply go straight to um, the CRC? And indeed, this is precisely what uh, Professor Goodwin-Gill has argued. He has suggested, um, not mincing with words, that there is no useful purpose to be served by forcing the child asylum seeker through the process of refugee status determination or by requiring a child to show that he or she has a well-founded fear of persecution. He considers that the best interest principle codified in Article 3 provides a more appropriate basis for assessing the protection needs of children. The argument is a compelling one, and there is no straightforward answer, and I'm certainly not going to attempt to provide one today. Um, I am, however, would be very interested in anyone's views on this. The only point I would make is a practical one, and that's at least at present, uh, it's clear that the majority of states do still continue to put children through the refugee status determination process. And in those circumstances, there seems to be value in continuing to explore the manner in which the convention definition might appropriately accommodate the claims of refugee children. That that's covers all of the substance um, that I wanted to talk about uh, this evening. The final thing that I want to do uh, is a, a brief plug of, of sorts. For the past 18 months, um, I've been developing a web resource in collaboration with the Princess Diana Trust and the Refugee Children's Project at Quorum. And the idea behind it really was to draw on all of the empirical material I obtained uh, for my doctoral research and to create a platform that would really, I guess, 
promote um, the use of the conventional rights of the child uh, in these uh, three modes of inter- interaction. So uh, this um, website will, when launched, which will be in the next six months or so, um, it contains approximately 2,000 refugee or migration related but predominantly refugee and complementary protection cases involving um, children uh, predominantly in the in the common law world but also um, a few European jurisdictions uh, it's accompanied by about approximately 500 primary resources from the various international organizations uh, every document is coded by keyword etc but I think the key thing is that every document and every case is coded um, by right under the conventional rights of the child. So it really is about trying to promote uh, engagement, um, greater engagement with the convention uh, in cases involving children. Uh, so, for example, female genital cutting, um, what would come up uh, is kind of the the leading cases on female genital cutting, but then also um, suggested resources. So it will provide you uh, with copies of the UNHCR, UNICEF, um, UN Committee on the Rights of the Child uh, documents on that topic as well. Uh, you can also do advanced searches. Um, uh, and as I said, you can search by particular, whether it involves a particular process or procedure, so it might be age determination, age assessments, it might be guardianship arrangements, it might be adoption. You can search via elements of the refugee definition, uh, but then, as I said, I think most critically, you can search via uh, each right under the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Uh, and, um, uh, yeah, so hopefully this will be uh, launched soon. As I said, it's got the cases, the legal resources, and we're in the process of trying to get together um, at least some, which probably won't be that many, but um, legal briefs in the form of there are some great organisations around the world that are doing this stuff and, and really promoting the Convention on the Rights of the Child in, in claims involving children. The Harvard Immigration um, Clinic is one example, and so we're trying to put up um, that, all of the amicus briefs, etc., that, that, that they produce, also UNHCR, um, etc. So that uh, advocates, refugee advocates, lawyers um, have examples of how to actually, I guess, do what I'm trying to argue we should do better. Thank you. For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.